Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this journey, all things Dominic Dunn. Thanks so much for joining me today in a little bit of a departure from true crime. We have been heavy on true crime over the last few episodes, and quite frankly, as we are in the middle of moving homes, there's enough true crime in my current life with sorting and packing my past and my future. True crime was not the only genre Dominic Dunn was into. He plays high society, sure, but Hollywood, y'all. Come on, this is the kid with Aunt Harriet who loves it all and makes his career and name in Hollywood living the high life. In some remarkable pieces for Vanity Fair, as well as published in Fatal Charms and Mansions of Limbo, Dominic will write some fascinating portraits of his lady friends from Hollywood. We have talked about one of these already, the legendary Elizabeth Taylor. Today it is time for another legend, Ava Gardner. Dominic talks with Ava Gardner in the spring of 1984, with Vanity Fair publishing his recollections in their Vanities column in a piece called Ava Now in June of that same year. And remembering back to a previous Done and Done episode, you recall the Dominic Dunn, Frank Sinatra brouhaha. Frank Sinatra is Ava Gardner's third husband. Dominic and Frank have a long-standing feud. How do we get to this particular interview of Dominic's with Ava Gardner, love goddess of Hollywood. Let's investigate. Oh, Ava Gardner, I do love her story. I'm going to open the episode with Dunn's writing here from the beginning of Ava now. Let's not talk about Mickey or Artie or Frank, she said, looking up from lighting a cigarette, exhaling smoke. She was talking about Rooney and Shaw and Sinatra, of course, the husbands of her three brief marriages, the last of which ended in 1957. Every interview she ever gave, she said, ended up being a discussion of the same old stories, true and untrue, that had been told oh so many times. Let's not go into the stuff you always read about me. Okay, I replied. Is that a tape recorder? Yes. Oh, honey, uh uh-uh. I'm more scared of those things than I am of the camera. Okay, don't write, she said later when she saw me taking notes. Let's just talk. So from the opening paragraph here, we know we're not going to get much in the way from Ava about her ex-husbands, all famous legends in their own right, ex-wife notwithstanding. Lucky for y'all, I've covered Ava Gardner in depth on my other podcast, Trashy Divorces, and we can talk about those three ex-husbands of hers in a little bit of detail, along with filling in some of her background What happens before the marriages? What happens with the three husbands that she's not going to talk about? Let's go ahead and set the stage for this meeting that Dominic and Ava have in London, taking a lot of this particular research from Ava's biography that she will publish in 1990 called Ava, My Story. It is a remarkable biography, one of my favorites. Strong recommend if you really want a good beach read for the summer. What's Ava's story? Ava Lavinia Gardner was born on Christmas Eve, 1922. She is the baby of seven kids. 
Ava is her mom's middle-aged surprise. Her mom is 39 when she's born. Dad is a tenant tobacco farmer. Ava is born in a tiny, tiny town called Grabtown, North Carolina, which isn't even big enough to get on the map. She's going to grow up with a poor childhood insofar as financial resources, but a lot of family love, a lot of family togetherness. Ava is going to be really close to her family in ways that you don't see a lot of stars do throughout their life. She will always stay connected to her roots, even though she will travel the world to find her happiness. So Ava, being a Christmas Eve baby, will write about this in her book. And wouldn't it be just my luck to be born a Capricorn? I've always thought of it as the worst sign, but no matter. It wasn't my style to let a little thing like stars get in the way. I love her. The thing about Ava growing up, she knew she deserved two presents. But like a lot of other kids with a holiday birthday, especially in a family lacking financial resources, that just isn't going to happen. She will continue in writing. And the news got worse. It appeared there was this whole other person, Jesus Christ, whose birthday a lot of people tended to confuse with mine. I was personally outraged. It was a long time before I forgave the Lord for that. The Gardner home with mom and dad and the seven kids is humble. There's no indoor plumbing. And the town of Grabtown is really a community of people working together. It's tiny. Everyone there is working in the fields, black, white. It is a community system that everyone participates in. They're all doing it together. And Ava and her mother are close. Remember, Ava's the youngest. She's the baby. And mom and Ava love going to the movies. They really like Clark Gable. But mom is from a different era. She demands a Victorian standard. There's no messing around. And with her family, Ava is very obedient, but when she's not within her mother's reach, there is a little bit of cussing, a little bit of drinking, a little bit of causing some trouble. Ava will take any dare available. Mom does catch her kissing on the porch one night and all hell breaks loose. Any sort of premarital messing around is forbidden. Sadly, a fire will burn down the family farm where the family will move then to Virginia, and her father's health takes a turn. He will die at the age of 59 in 1938. Ava is 15, and in this grief, the family will be moving again. By the age of 18, Ava has decided that she can be a secretary, find a husband, then be a wife and mother. It's a good life. It's perfectly fine. Ava will say if she had a wish, it would be to sing with the band. She's in love with bands from an early age. And this will get her into some heat in her early life, but she really is a terrific singer. She will write, if you're half Irish and half Scottish and you can't sing, there must be something wrong with you. So this singing on the side, secretary, wife, mother thing, it's a little more humble, I guess, than what she's going to get. Because what happens? At that same age of 18, Ava Gardner is going to make it up to the big city in 1940. Her older sister, Bappy, is married to a photographer. And at the time, Gone with the Wind is all the rage. And her brother-in-law, Ava's brother-in-law, will take photos of Ava in the big hat scarlet getup. And holy cats, the camera loves her. 
So brother-in-law is going to take these pictures and put them in his shop window. And one day, a scout for MGM just happens to wander by, MGM with more stars than in the heavens, and he sees Ava and is like, whoa, we have to test this kid. So Mama and Ava head on up for a test, and they go see the guy for the test, and this guy cannot understand anything Ava Gardner is saying because her accent is so thick. He decides, forget the audio test, we'll just do a visual test. So Ava shows up the next day, and she walks, and she places flowers on the table, and she says a few words, but there is not an angle the camera does not love Ava Gardner from. She will be signed with MGM for $50 a month for seven years. And this is all fine and good in New York City. Then that same test is seen in Hollywood, and they say, you need to bring this kid out here. Mama is a hard no. Big no. Absolute no. You are not going to take my darling child to California. An older sister, Bappy's going to step in. Hold on, Mom. Maybe you're being a little hasty. I'll go with her. I'll protect her. I'll make sure everything is legitimate and on the up and up. That is the only way Ava's mom will allow it. The other thing happening through this time, and what Bappy knows that Ava doesn't know, that she soon will find out, is that her mom is really sick. Off Ava and Bappy go to Hollywood. Can you imagine being a hit kid from a hick town? How Hollywood must have looked landing in 1941? Ava will write in her biography, I had less than no experience. I didn't know anything about anything, but part of me had no doubt I would end up a movie queen. And even if I didn't, I certainly didn't have a hell of a lot to lose. But she's Ava. She's off and running. She gets on the lot. She's getting dictation lessons and lessons about poise and everything else they need to teach a hit kid to be a movie queen star. And Ava will take this in for a long time, sort of insulting, like, why do you want to change me? She's super malleable, but the damage that that want of change for her really does take a hit on her psyche. But it's all happening in one day. It just so happens that MGM's number one star, a 20-year-old Mickey Rooney, who is dressed up for this comedy bit, looking a lot like Carmen Miranda, sees a young Ava. Mickey Rooney has to have her. Mickey Rooney, Ava's husband number one. He has a wife number one as well, and he's going to go on to have eight more wives in his life. Mickey's been acting since birth. His parents were in vaudeville. He makes his film debut at the age of six. And in 1941, when Ava lands in Hollywood, Mickey Rooney is making $5,000 a week and is one of the most famous men in America. Mickey Rooney is hooked. One look, he wants Ava. He asks for her number. She says no. He says please. He breaks her down. He gets her number and then he calls. Can I take you to dinner? Absolutely not. This goes on for a while. Older sister Bappy, totally encouraging the you gotta make them work for it, honey game. And Ava and Mickey will end up going to dinner. Then they have a handful of dates. She will write, 
At first, Mickey's shortness kind of stunned me, but he was charming and romantic and great fun, and I began to miss him when he wasn't around. I was raised in a southern tempo, and Mickey had so much speed, it was dazzling. Speaking of speed, after the fallout of Mom catching Ava kissing on the porch back long ago, Mickey Rooney will soon find out that Ava is not fast in the sack. It's just not going to happen. Mickey Rooney sees a very clear alternative, which is, hey, let's get married. He will ask Ava Gardner on the daily. He's head over heels in love with her. She is a hard no on premarital sex. Mickey Rooney has never heard a lot of no. He is persistent and young, and sweet 18-year-old Ava is in this new energy of Hollywood and Mickey Rooney, marry me, marry me, and she finally gives in only when she turns 19. So Ava Gardner, at 19, goes to meet Mickey's mom. And mom knows all her son wants to do is sleep with her, and then he's going to possibly discard her. And Mickey's mom tells Ava this, and Ava's a little stunned. But honestly, Ava and Mickey's mom get along marvelously. Ava is really impressed with her knowledge and breadth of cuss words. Ava's going to get along with every one of her mother-in-laws. She says they were all strong, assertive women, and if I had only gotten along with their sons half as well as I did with them. The wedding, I guess, is on, but of course they have to get permission of the big boss, Louis B. Mayer, which Mickey Rooney will go do. There's an awkward Ava Gardner waiting in the office where the secretary of Louis B. is kind of mean to her. She remembers Ava's test. And the secretary will ask Ava, which is more important to her, her career or love? Ava will answer in her very thick Southern accent, my career, of course. And the secretary will tell Ava Gardner, a leopard doesn't change his spots. January 10th, 1942, Mickey and Ava will marry and the whole thing becomes an MGM production. The honeymoon achieves Mickey's end. There's a handler with them all the time, and Mickey's mostly playing golf all day. He likes booze and gambling and women, and you didn't really think being married was going to stop him from continuing the fun he's always had. Mickey's ready to party, and Ava, who has this ideal of her parents' marriage, is much more traditional. Ava would like to stay home and cook for her husband, and neither one of these young people really have set up a proper expectation, so it goes badly pretty quickly. About two months in, Ava's appendix will rupture, and she's rushed to the hospital, and when she returns home, she finds out that her husband has been entertaining other women in her bed and bathroom, so that's not cool. Ava will write, I don't cheat and I don't want nobody cheating on me. In those days, she was pretty trusting and she is shattered by this revelation and remembers those secretary's words that a leopard really doesn't change his spots. Ava will continue writing about Mickey. Neither one of them were ready for that. We had no idea that marriage involved a meeting of the minds. He wasn't ready for it. But she doesn't blame Mickey for the breakup. She will write, he was just made the way he was, and I didn't find out until it was too late that I wasn't the right girl for him. There are on and off rows and reconciliations between the two of them. 
but it will all fall out one night when a very drunk Mickey Rooney is getting riled up by his friends to take out his black book, and he does, and Ava's there watching this, and then Ava is not there to see any more. She's done. One year and five days after the marriage took place, marriage number one to Mickey Rooney is over. She will pay for her own lawyer. She will waive the claim on half of his estate. She will take $25,000 and out she goes. This isn't to say that Ava and Mickey won't liaison in the sack every now and then over the next few years, but the marriage is not love forever as her original ring was engraved. The divorce decree is granted May 21st, 1943, that same day, adding to her first divorce at the age of 20, Ava's mother passes away that same day. She will write, We'd expected it. We knew it was going to happen, but that didn't make it any easier. You can get over pain, loneliness, disappointment, and love, but you can never get over grief. That lasts forever. Ava's now single, 20, working at MGM and in Hollywood, between 1941 and 1946, this five-year period encompasses her first and second marriages. Ava is working hard. She's going to make 17 films. She will also begin a friendship with Howard Hughes, a relationship that will last 20 years, which is really something if you consider Howard Hughes. Let's go ahead and bring up husband number two, band leader Artie Shaw. Artie Shaw is 12 years older. He meets Ava, and at the time, he's a band leader. He's a genius musician. He's an intellectual and a perfectionist to boot. Has made it through four of what will be Artie's total of eight marriages. Halfway done. Mickey Rooney, total of nine. Artie Shaw, total of eight. Got some real big hitters here. So Ava and Artie meet. And remember Ava and her big band thing? Artie's just back from the war, and they're introduced and proceed to go on a date every single night. She's hooked. And one night at Lucy's, this small Italian joint across from RKO, Artie says to Ava, I think that physically, emotionally, and mentally you are the most perfect woman I've ever met, and I would marry you tonight, except for the fact I've married too many wives already. So they see each other for the first eight months of their relationship with no kind of business on the side, but then they decide, after this time, to go ahead and have an affair. Ava will move into Artie's mock Tudor house on Bedford Drive in Beverly Hills, and she says this love affair is magic. She's with him and hanging out with his band, and everything is great. So why not push great? Try to make it better with marriage? Yikes. October 17th, 1945. This is going to be husband number two for Ava Gardner, wife number five for Artie Shaw. But in a way that's probably reminiscent with MGM trying to change Ava when she first comes to Hollywood, Artie wants to do the same thing. He wants to shape Ava like his Galatea. He's introducing her to a new world of art and literature and politics and psychology, but he makes her work for it. He's very bossy. Read this. Learn this. Up until this point in her life, Ava Gardner has read Gone with the Wind. But here comes Artie Shaw laying out a whole education for her. 
getting angry at her. She's not obeying his rules. He'll throw a book across the room angry one night when he catches Ava reading this little book called Forever Amber. Forever Amber was super trashy in its day. It's a novel with this romp through Restoration England, and it's so salacious at the time that it is banned because of the sexual references. In the book, it's condemned by the Hayes office, but that won't stop Hollywood from buying the movie rights to the film, which will be released in 1947. Forever Amber is one of the best-selling novels of the 1940s. It sells over 3 million copies. Artie Shaw has not approved Forever Amber for Ava's list. Why aren't you reading Sigmund Freud? Good Lord. Sigmund Freud is one of the first books Artie gives her. And then Artie Shaw decides that he would like to take Ava to a psychiatrist, to which Ava goes. But she will insist on getting an IQ test. And it turns out that this hit kid is really, really bright. And this spurs her to enroll in some classes at UCLA. She and Artie play chess until she beats him just that once. They never play chess again. 1946 is rolling along fine, but she will get a little suspicious when Artie Shaw will sell his huge, amazing, wonderful home and buy kind of a crap place in the valley. Not that the valley's a bad place, but all things considered, it's not the same standard of living. And with California, law, and all, Artie Shaw is prepping. Ava Gardner's like, you've got to be kidding me. She'll move out. And Artie calls her into his office one day, and Ava's like, good, you've come to your senses. And Artie will, in fact, say, would you object if I go to Mexico and just got a quick divorce? Ava is so stunned. She agrees. And that's kind of it for Ava Gardner and Artie Shaw. The marriage has lasted just like marriage number one, one year and one week. She will pay for her own divorce. She will ask for nothing and also kind of reinforce that she is done with all of his brain experiments. In a fun little follow-up to this story, Artie Shaw will marry one week later. He'll take a new bride one week after the divorce is final and his new wife, is the author of Forever Amber, Kathleen Windsor. (laughs) You can't make it up. Ava will write saying that Artie really was a deep hurt. She loved him so much, but the pretty pupil routine that he was playing wasn't really cool. She writes, I was never an equal. I was never given the dignity of being a wife. I thought at the time love could cure anything. I found out the hard way that it can't. You have to have more in common than mad love for a marriage to work. Which is going to bring us to marriage number three, Frank Sinatra. Frank will meet Ava originally during her first marriage to Mickey Rooney. They're all out on Sunset Strip one night and Frank naturally knows Mickey and comes over to say hello. And Frank says to Ava, Why didn't I meet you before Mickey? I could have married you myself. Small complication, though. Frank Sinatra is already married to his first wife, Nancy Sr. They got married in 1939. But it's 1943 now, and Frank is really taken with Ava from that moment on. He's going to go on to date a lot of ladies. Ava, going to fool around with a lot of guys, too. 
She goes through her run of affairs with some single and some married actors throughout the 1940s and after her divorce from Artie Shaw. It's fair to say that Frank and Ava are both doing a lot of cavorting, just not with each other, until 1948. There's a big MGM party, and Ava is driving to the party. And there is a car that will speed past her and then slow down and speed past again and then slow down. And it's Frank Sinatra, and he has decided to flirt car style. He's headed to that same MGM event. But Ava is determined not to flirt. Remember, Frank is married with kids. And Ava really does like the bands and band leaders, and she really thinks Frank is a terrific singer. Like, he's the best singer, but... I don't want to flirt with you. But the universe does have a plan for these two kids. It evolves to the next level. See, Frank has a bachelor pad over at the Sunset Towers. And Ava and her friend and assistant, Rini, are literally living at the base of the Sunset Towers, which is a huge structure, but they live in a very tiny apartment at the base of it. So one night, Frank and his buddies are having drinks and they would call over the balcony. Ava, we know you're down there. And Ava and her friend and Rini would kind of nod and smile like, ah, you idiots. But after a few of these casual shout outs, Frank and Ava will meet outside the building and Frank says, let's be friends. Let's have dinner and drinks. Dinner and drinks happen, which will turn into a little bit of a makeout session. And as attracted as Ava is to Frank and Frank is to her, she just feels it's wrong. Ava heads home like, you're married. I, I can't do this. Leading us to sometime in 1949, there's a party in Palm Springs. Ava goes with her older sister, Bappy, who eventually takes off because Bappy's kind of bored and Ava knows she can get a ride and Frank is at the party. So, hey, let's start it up again. Things aren't really going great for Frank Sinatra at the moment. His voice is letting him down. He's falling at the poles of most popular vocalists. His billing has gone down to not the lead name on the marquee. It's a tough time for him, but Ava's not going to focus on that. They focus on falling in love. All the things two people do, they drink, they laugh, they talk. He takes her home from this party. There's no kiss or further date, but Ava knows she's in love. They meet back again in Hollywood for dinner. Ava will ask about his wife, Nancy. Frank will say that he has left Nancy physically, emotionally, and geographically, years before now, and he's not going back. He'll be committed to his kids forever, though. And this deep loyalty, Ava kind of gets as part of his nature. She's even more in love. They make love that night. Ava will describe it as magic, and they become lovers forever, eternally. Sometimes it happens that way. So they're in love, and he's married, and the two are really trying to keep a low profile about their affair. Ava's friend, Lana Turner, also the third ex-wife of Artie Shaw, will warn Ava off Frank. There's no malice. There's no meanness in this. Just, hey, honey, I dated him too, and he's never going to leave Nancy. Save yourself the trouble. Ava tells Lana, hey, with me, there won't be any compromise if he wants me. Frank wants her, y'all. They keep it really quiet for a while. But early in 1950, all sort of blows up. Frank Sinatra has a gig in Dallas and Ava calls one of his buddies like, hey, let's go surprise Frank. It'll be great. 
The friend warns her, I don't think that's a great idea, which only makes Ava Gardner more determined to go surprise Frank. So off they go, Ava and the friend. And Frank is happy to see Ava, but then the mayor of Dallas invites them to dinner and their picture is taken together. And 24 hours later, that picture of them at dinner is the headline. And this is it. This is the last straw for Frank's wife, Nancy. She will announce the separation of she and Frank Sinatra on Valentine's Day, 1950. And now Ava Gardner has the scorn of the world heaped on her. She is perceived as a Jezebel. Hate mail is pouring in. The Legion of Decency is threatening to ban her movies. Catholic churches are all asking all of their students to pray for Nancy. Ava is labeled a homewrecker and a gold digger. And Frank's reputation, which was already a little bit less shiny than it used to be, is now lower than dirt. And the press is going to call open season on these two. It's fair to say that both Frank Sinatra and Ava Gardner are kind of hotheads. They're possessive. They're jealous. And neither one possess really tranquil souls. When they fight, it is all of that passion all combined. They never fight about work. It's not professional squabbles. Ava will call it red-fanged romantic jealousy. And y'all, Ava takes no nonsense. Where men are praised for sleeping around, Ava really takes contention to this. She's very angry that she gets the quote-unquote slut label for the same thing and will write in her book, It is bullshit, honey. Frank and Ava do enter into this affair, often getting in trouble in their escapades. There's one time Sinatra's publicist had to get them out of jail after a drunken joyride at 3 a.m., which leaves several storefront windows blown out by the two's pistols. It's going to take about $20,000 to get them out of that one. Oh, Frank, he had been jealous of Artie Shaw. But if there is jealousy to (laughs) increase in Frank, it's not about Artie Shaw. It's about Ava's friend, Howard Hughes. Frank Sinatra cannot understand how Ava Gardner has never slept with him. He he just is beyond comprehension. Now, Howard Hughes is crazy about Ava Gardner, but Ava Gardner is not messed up romantically with the likes of Howard Hughes, and she never will be. But that won't stop Howard Hughes from spying on Ava all the time. She doesn't care. No one's getting in her way. To the opposite end, Howard Hughes cannot stand Frank Sinatra, and Howard sees his chance to get Ava Gardner. Never going to happen. Ava's way too far gone on Frank. A little bit of a trashy thing that happens here. Ava will march Frank up to his old home and in front of Nancy and the kids demand to know if Nancy will grant him a divorce. Good Lord. There's a lot of ups. There's a lot of downs between these two. But Ava will write, Our love was deep and true, even though the fact we couldn't live with each other any more than we couldn't live without each other sometimes made it hard for outsiders to understand. All I know is that if Frank lost me or I lost him during those months, our worlds would have been shattered. By the end of October 1951, Nancy Sr. has had her divorce granted, and a week later, Frank and Ava, ready to get married, Howard Hughes is going to throw a wrench in it, almost gets the wedding canceled, but the wedding will happen. 
November 7th, 1951. Their honeymoon happens. They go from Miami to Havana. They have a marvelous time, probably the most marvelous time of their marriage. There's no press hounding them. And Havana in 1951 is kind of a hot spot. But once they return from this honeymoon bliss, everything's still bad. Frank's career is taking and Ava wants to support him. She says she's a lot to handle, but he's got guilt about Nancy. And she's working now to pay the bills because Frank can't get work. These two truly have the most on-again, off-again marriage in Hollywood. Again, like you get with Ava Gardner, there are rows, there are reconciliations, they're both trying to work. She'll use her weight at the studio to get Frank the part of Maggio and From Here to Eternity. Ava's about to start a new film shooting in Africa, Mongombo. She will also learn as Frank gets that part in From Here to Eternity, that Ava is pregnant. She weighs all the considerations, hers, the studios, and will write in her biography about every woman having the right to choose what's best for her. Ava will proceed to have an abortion without telling Frank. She says this was not the time, just she wasn't ready. She will continue... I don't think it's a sensible time for me to have a child. If you bring a child into the world, it's got to have a stable background, loving parents who can give it time and attention. At present, my entire life is one mad whirl, and it's going to be like that for a few years to come. Frank is going to go to Africa in December of 1952 for Ava's 30th birthday. Frank has the part. Things are looking up. Ava doesn't tell Frank about that first trip to London. And they have such a good time in December that Ava's pregnant again, and this time Frank does know. She will head to a different clinic and will later write about this. Clearly someone told him what I was doing, because as long as I live, I'll never forget waking up after the operation and seeing Frank sitting next to me on the bed with tears in his eyes. But I think I was right. I still think I was right. They decide to go on another honeymoon, this time in Europe. They take a break from filming, and when they are around Europe, fans are screaming for Ava, humiliating Frank. This trip is bad. Things never really turn around for the couple after this. On October 29th, 1953, their separation is announced by MGM. The statement released reads, Ava Gardner and Frank Sinatra stated today that having reluctantly exhausted every effort to reconcile their differences, they could find no mutual basis on which to continue their marriage. Both expressed deep regret and great respect for each other. Their separation is final, and Miss Gardner will seek a divorce. They will take another four years to finalize that divorce. They're going to have multiple affairs with lots of other people before the divorce is final in 1957, but they always remain close. Ava and Frank never really get away from each other. I do want to read one other excerpt from Ava Gardner's Ava, My Story, where she writes very honestly about her three matrimonial failures, as she calls them. She writes, I'm not proud of my three matrimonial failures. What woman would be? I know I loved each of my husbands sincerely and deeply, but things like career crises, the nagging Hollywood spotlight, all the criticism we took every time we turned around got in the way of our genuine feelings. 
I suffered, I really suffered with all three of my husbands. And I tried damn hard with all three, starting each marriage certain that it was going to last till the end of my life. Yet none of them lasted more than a year or two. I think the main reason my marriages failed is that I always loved too well, but never wisely. I'm terribly possessive about the people I love, and I probably smother them with love. I'm jealous of every minute they spend away from me. I want to be with them, to see them, to be able to touch them. Then and only then am I happy. For instance, when I couldn't get Frank on the telephone immediately, I wanted to kill myself. It was stupid, I suppose, but it was me. I knew that the men I married were very attractive to the opposite sex. The 20 marriages they had between them proves that, if nothing else does. And I knew they had to face situations where the ladies concerned were practically dragging them into bed. I could rationalize those encounters, but I couldn't live with them. Sex isn't all that important, but it is when you love someone very much. Perhaps I expected too much from my husbands, and they inevitably disappointed me. God knows I've got so many frailties myself, I ought to be able to understand and forgive them and others, but I don't. If I was capable and wanted to give, then why couldn't I expect the same thing in return? Maybe, in the final analysis, they saw me as something I wasn't, and I tried to turn them into something they could never be. I loved them all, but maybe I never understood any of them. I don't think they understood me. I suppose one of the strangest things about my trio of failed marriages, and in passing I would like to gently point out that none of my three exes were asked to pay a penny in alimony, was the fact that the marriage bond seemed to be a shackle that manacled us together. Once divorced, we enjoyed each other and retained a deep friendship. Oh, and here we go, y'all. And more than anyone else, that was true between Frank and me. Frank and I have the kind of friendship, relationship, where you don't have to say, I'm going to telephone you every day, or I'm going to write you every month or every six months. When you feel like talking, you talk. And when you feel like seeing each other, you do that. There are no ties, no strings, and there shouldn't be. We might have been in different cities, different countries, but we were never apart. And every once in a while, Frank would call me in Madrid, London, Rome, New York, wherever I happened to be, and say, Ava, let's try again. And I'd say, okay, and drop everything, sometimes even a part in a picture, and it would be heaven. But it wouldn't last more than 24 hours, and I'd go running off again, literally running. We could never quite understand why it hadn't and couldn't work out. Our phone bills were astronomical, and when I found letters Frank wrote me the other day, the total could fill a suitcase. Every single day during our relationship, no matter where in the world I was, I'd get a telegram from Frank saying he loved me and missed me. He was a man who was desperate for companionship and love. Can you wonder that he always had mine? Y'all, after hearing all of that, the remainder of the piece Ava Now by Dominic Dunn means so much more. Let's go back to Let's Just Talk, that line from Ava. Dunn will continue writing. Ava Gardner, the ravishing love goddess of the 1950s, still has the walk, the style, and the excitement of a movie queen. Her glorious face, untouched by cosmetic surgery, 
is remarkably unravaged by decades of tabloid-reported riotous living. A North Carolina accent occasionally seeps through the deep, lush MGM-trained voice, which is overlaid with a glossy international patina. She moved to London in 1968 after a long sojourn in Madrid, where she engaged in a lifestyle so flamboyant it caused her neighbors, the exiled Perones of Argentina, to seek residence elsewhere. Time in England have brought tranquility to her life. It is no accident that she gravitated to the civilized nation's capital. The respect for privacy, the quieter way of life, and even the weather appeal to her. She wanders the streets of London, usually unrecognized and unintruded upon, a rootless, beautiful, fiercely American expatriate. She is a lady in retirement, but most certainly not retired. At 62, she is soon to make her television debut as Agrippina, the evil mother of Nero, played by Anthony Andrews, in the forthcoming NBC miniseries A.D., She enjoyed shooting on location in Tunisia, and the possibility of a new career in a new medium looms. Her most successful films were those in which the parts she played, like the barefoot Contessa in the film of that name, and Lady Brett Ashley and her friend Ernest Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises, meshed with the famous wild persona she created off the screen, elevating her to almost mythic Hollywood star status. Her last major role was in Tennessee Williams' The Night of the Iguana under her favorite director, John Huston. Her appearances since then have been mostly cameo roles in undistinguished films, but there is no sense of the washed-up or has-been about her. She walked away from her career but retained her stardom. Her name still evokes tremendous curiosity among the generation who adored her. We met during a photographic session at the Launceston Place studio of Lord Snowden in London. Although a fashionable hairdresser and a makeup man had been engaged by Lord Snowden, Ava Gardner arrived, already made up and quaffed. She had done her face and hair herself. She claimed she was nervous about the sitting, but she seemed to enjoy the experience. In a magical star gesture, a throwback to her MGM days, She signed the photo release form as if she were bestowing an autograph at a premiere. I love the way he writes. Dunn will continue. Later, we walked from the studio in Kensington to her home in Knightsbridge, through back streets and mews and across parks. She knows London like a tour guide. Stepping off a curb, I looked left instead of right, in the American manner, and nearly got nipped by a passing taxi. You better hold my hand she said with a smile, and held it out to me. We stopped to visit her veterinarian along the way. Some pills he had prescribed for her corgi were causing listlessness. You'll like Keith, she said to me about the veterinarian. Waiting for Keith, who was in conference, she talked about some homeopathic cures for pets with a woman who had two gray cats in a box. Midway through the conversation, I saw the moment of recognition in the woman's eyes when she realized she was talking with Ava Gardner, but with true English tact, she suppressed her delight. Ava Gardner's apartment is in a cream-colored Victorian mansion that faces on a communal garden. The king of Malaysia lives in that house when he's in London, she said, pointing out a neighboring building. For obvious reasons, there is a made-up name on the outside bell of her house. 
She buzzed a signal upstairs, two shorts and a long, or two longs and a short. Senora, came the voice through the speaker. See, Carmen, she replied. And we were buzzed into the downstairs hall. Upstairs, a door opened, and the corgi barked with wild excitement, matched by his mistress's cries of greeting. She calls the corgi Morgan, after her American business manager. Carmen, uniformed, who had been with her for years, stood at the front door and acknowledged an affectionate introduction. The apartment is extremely handsome, with large rooms and wide halls. Elaborately curtained windows open onto a long, shrub-planted balcony that fronts the house. Marble-topped consoles, gilt mirrors, lacquered cabinets, French and Regency chairs, and Chinese screens fill the rooms in actressy splendor. The dining room is book-lined. A drink tray with ice and glasses had been set on a table in the drawing room, where a fire blazed invitingly. It is a very well-run household. And there we were, finally, settled in, strangers meeting. She smoked constantly, selecting each cigarette from a Georgian silver box and using a heavy cut glass and ormolu table lighter in the shape of a pineapple. Lighting a cigarette is a two-handed operation, almost ritualistic, occupying her attention totally. It is another movie star gesture in the grand tradition. She avoids the social whirl and first nights of London life, preferring to pop in on her small coterie of friends when they are not entertaining. She attends the ballet, opera, and theater in preview performances, often with her neighbor and great friend, the English actor Charles Gray, who lives so close by that they can talk to each other from their balconies. I asked about her celebrated friendships with Robert Graves, Tennessee Williams, Noel Coward, Maria Callas, and of course, Hemingway and Houston. She smiled in recollection. Those weren't day-to-day friendships, not through thick and thin, she said, and then added, but they were intense on the occasions we met. She has a habit of speaking to her dog to convey messages to you or to avoid questions she considers invasions of privacy. I told her a gossipy story a mutual friend of ours had told me involving adultery and black satin lingerie and duplicity. She clearly didn't see the need for that story to have been told, either by our mutual friend to me or me to her, and told her dog so. That's not a nice story. It dawned on me that Ava Gardner, who was the subject of so much gossip for so many years, never gossiped herself. Once, when the name of someone who had not behaved well with her came up, a look crossed her face that told me that she had a lot she could say about that person, but she said nothing. It is the reason she will never write a book, although offers are constant. Several unauthorized biographies have been written about her, but she scoffed at them, saying they were written from gossip columns and reviews of her pictures. Despite her strong sense of forthrightness, she disapproves of the kind of sexually graphic autobiographies that certain actresses of her generation have written, telling all, naming names. Just a reminder, Ava will publish her biography finally in 1990, Ava, My Story. It's so good. Dunn will wrap his Vanities article from June 1984, writing this. Late at night, walking again, we went into a crowded pub. 
the mass of young patrons did not part for the entrance of the bareheaded, mink-jacketed star with a corgi on a leash, and I searched her face for disappointment, but found none. She seeps into you in a haunting kind of way, her friend Roddy McDowell said about her, and it is true. She is by turns complicated and mysterious, direct and honest, witty and melancholy. I haven't taken an overdose of sleeping pills and called my agent, she said, quoting a much-repeated line of hers from times past. I haven't been in jail, and I don't go running to a psychiatrist every two minutes. That's something of an accomplishment, isn't it? And that is the end of that piece, and I just love his Hollywood stuff. Thanks, y'all, for joining me today. Done and Done is going to encompass so much more true crime, some Hollywood, some high society, too. Thanks for letting me indulge in a happier story this week. I sure do have a place of affection for Ava Gardner in my heart. I hope after that, you do as well. Thanks again for joining me today and for your time and for all the kind emails and kind reviews. Y'all are the very best. I'll see you back in two weeks with another Done and Done. Until then, friends, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at Done and Done Podcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.